when I came to Bethlehem in the summer of 1980, which is just a few blocks from here, the Metrodome was under construction. And the first game was in September of 1982. And so I came when it was being built, and I will leave next year when it's being disassembled. (laughs) And I've been thinking about the implications of that. (laughs) But mainly, I'm mentioning it because of the way I responded to that felt threat. Not only when the dome was being built did it feel threatening to our church, traffic, parking, crowds, Sunday, will will this work anymore? Um, when games are at 12.03 uh, and everybody's driving in. But when that freeway, this big junction out here, 94 and 35, when that was built in the late 60s, early 70s, you can imagine what a devastation that felt like to a nice, peaceful community with streets that went across there and across nice little homes everywhere, and they're wiping them out. They're just wiping them out by the dozens, moving some of them. And our church is 100 feet away. And the thought, can we even begin to survive? Will this even be possible? Will anybody be able to get here? So the point is, how does one respond to threats? Because if you if you live anywhere near an urban center, change is what happens. And in, in maybe in little rural communities, um, the demands of the ministry are very different. But if you're in a city, it is just one either exciting or threatening change, or both, after another. And so here's what I wrote. Uh, I printed out the 19, September 14, 1982 article that I wrote for our newsletter called God Threw His Shoe on Edom, or The Dome is Dead. And the text was Psalm 108.9, Moab is my wash basin, Upon Edom I cast my shoe. And I'll read the first two paragraphs. Picture Edom in rebellion against Yahweh and his people. Picture them mustering thousands and thousands of warriors. Picture the iron chariots, the war horses snorting and stamping, the bulging muscles and bronze skin of the mighty men, the razor-sharp swords, the awful pointed spears, the shields flashing in the sun, the unflinching countenance of seasoned soldiers. Picture a horde of fierce fighting men thundering through the valley of Seir, fearful, dreadful, fierce, and powerful. When God sees them coming, he sits down. He will wash his feet. With 18,000 fighting warriors approaching like a a stampede of Texas longhorns, God sits down to wash his feet. And then, as one would flick a fly, he tosses his shoe on Edom and 18,000 soldiers fall. God never even looked. He scarcely heard the noise. The world sits stunned at the victory, and God sits with his feet in the water. And that's what I tried to show our people. That's what I've been trying to show them for 30 years. We have a massively strong God. He's never confused. He's never perplexed. He's never nervous. He's never without an answer. 
He's never threatened. And so what I'd like to take my few minutes to do is to just mention five things about that God that have marked my efforts in in the city here. And, and you will discover immediately that they are not urban-specific. And that is part of who I am. That's been the way I've led. But they are transferable and they're basic. So here are the five things. Number one, submit. I have tried to, and I'm encouraging you to, submit to all of Scripture as your absolute authority and bring into being a people who do the same. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, and the ordinances of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Brothers, it marks the gospel coalition. It it marks God-pleasing churches when there is an absolute commitment to his word. And what a difference it makes when you're in conversation with people and you can smell that's not their bottom line. It's just not. That's why you're not getting on. That's why the conflict is happening. You're just, you're just a word guy. It's there. I can't understand it all. I don't have all the mysteries solved. It's just there. I'm there. If it's there, I'm there. That, that, you can taste that when you're with a, a brotherhood who feels that way about the word of God. So meditate on it day and night. So and I knew I had to do this this morning at 9.15. It's going to be picked up. I knew I'd do the gym on Wednesday morning. I don't usually do it like I did it. I knew I have devotions with my daughter and my wife. I just backed everything up and the alarm went off at 5.45. I'm at the gym by 6 whatever. I'm home at 7.05, sweating like a loon, and sitting down, they tolerate me, with my wife and daughter, reading Colossians 1.24 to the end of the chapter, singing, um, what do we sing? Come, you sinners, poor and needy, and then praying together, then to the shower, and then I had one hour left for the buck. So God, grant us to never short-circuit the book. Meditate on it day and night. I'd love to just talk about what I saw this morning. I'm just so excited about what I saw this morning. I could preach two sermons here about just what God gave me for my encouragement after some really discouraging things recently. So he just gave me, and that's how I've survived. He just comes and he offers himself to me in, in the word and lead with the Bible and be a teacher and applier of, of the word. Second, think through a coherent, God-centered theology and build a people who breathe that vision. I do not count my life, this is Acts 20, I do not count my life of any value 
or as precious to myself. If only I might finish my course and the ministry God has given me to bear witness to the gospel of the grace of God. And then he goes on. And now, behold, I know none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you, I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from telling you the whole counsel of God. I'm going to say that to my people. But what does that mean? Whole counsel of God. Paul said he did it. So it's not impossible to do for a human being. Whole counsel of God can't mean infinite. He did it. And my, my take is that the whole counsel of God is those, that cluster of truths surrounding the core, the, the gospel. Here, Christ crucified, risen for sinners. The, 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 as Packer sums up the gospel in penal substitution. No, 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 that's not it. What was it? The, the word, um, it's got propitiation in it. Just two words. Say it again. Propitiate three words. Propitiation through substitution. So around, around that are clusters of doctrines that have the gospel coalitions have tried to put those in some um, documents. They're not as central, but they're supportive and they're explanatory and they're necessary to protect it and to explain it and to work it out. And, and that's the whole council. It's not every word in the Bible. I have not even preached one sermon in 33 years on the Song of Solomon. I'm ashamed of that. It's a great love story. I should have done that. But I'm just illustrating. You pick and you choose and you realize at the end of 33 years, oops. Like, <laughs> there have been some gaps. Been, shouldn't have spent eight years on Romans. <laughs> but you do the best you can. And then somebody else fixes that. So second is think through a coherent, God-centered theology and then help a people love that vision. Number three, preach the glories of that good news and all the truths that support it and flow from it. And I'm underlining the word preach, herald. I don't mean teach. That's great. I don't mean share and discuss. That's great. I mean Herald what a town crier does, preach. So here's the connection. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I solemnly testify in the presence of God and of Christ who will appear to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Preach the word. That's a weighty series of thoughts. Preach the word. And so I've made that the bread and butter of the, of the Bible theology preached. Because frankly, brothers, there are a lot of people today who, who don't think preaching is uniquely used by God, but only one of many options. 
I believe that that word keruso in 2 Timothy 4, 2, keruso, the word, means God has a special gift for his people in the hour of worship over the word. And that when a pastor full of the Holy Spirit, full of the word of God, heralds the glories of God in the gospel, something unique happens. Unique happens. Other things are also essential. Small group ministry, essential. Education, essential. Mission, essential. But something unique happens. And I believe Bethlehem has thrived, flourished, maintained its unity through some really rocky times because something happens on those moments that over and over again unite a people in the presence of the living God addressed by God Almighty. So I'm commending it to you. Um, You don't have to have any particular personality to do this. I mean, if you had Jonathan Edwards here and Billy Sunday here, really different, okay? And they both preached. Edwards, one arm on a pillow and a manuscript in his hand, reading with blood earnestness, hardly a gesture. So don't, don't write off preaching as a personality thing. I don't think it is. Number four, make prayer the visible engine of your life and corporate prayer the visible engine of your church. So have a place and have a time for yourself. Spurgeon preached a sermon on a verse that he called Robinson Crusoe's Verse, and the verse is, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, perform your vows to the Most High, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. So, call on me, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. That's the pattern of life. Call, receive, glorify. And if your people learn that rhythm, call every day. Call on him. Ask him for everything. Talk to him continually. Cry out. We love to say it, Bethlehem. What shall we render to the Lord for all of his blessings to us? We will call upon the name of the Lord. What a deal. You want to pay me back? Ask for more. Because I'm strong and I get glory by being wealthy to my poverty-stricken people. So prayer is such a gift. So personally have your place. Have your time. Don't let anything take you from it. Kneel every day. There's no big trick in that. It's just something happens when the body once a day says, this too, Lord, this too. I'm going low before you with my body. Just going to say it that way, too. It's like fasting and feasting. Both are good. Neither has any rules around how long or how much. Just it's a good thing. And then one of the hardest things we face is building a praying church and a corporate praying church. And Bethlehem is no great model. We've just tried over and over again to put prayer all over the place and then to encourage the the staff, be at one of those or two of those or three of those. I have... Probably for 20 
years been to five prayer meetings a week, 30-minute prayer meetings. Sounds big. It's not big because three of those are before services, right? Show up early and pray with five or 20 people before service for 30 minutes. And then Tuesday morning and Friday morning, those are my, those are my prayer times with, with people. And it makes a huge difference to pray with people and then model it from the pulpit. People don't know how to pray. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to feel when they pray. They don't know what to say when they pray. But if they hear you pray every week like a broken-hearted, needy sinner counting on God, crying out to a father who loves you, they'll learn how to pray. They will. And God will do mighty things in answer to prayer. And finally, number, number five, trust every day that God cares for you and will work for your good. Humble yourselves, this is First Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due season, not now, in due season, he may exalt you. Casting, and I think the participle means that the casting is an expression of humility. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So keeping your anxieties for yourself is pride. Humble yourself casting anxieties away on him. He's got shoulders that can handle them and he won't be the least burdened by them. If you keep them, you're proud. He's proud to be anxious. You look weak and you look frightened and you look like a puppy and all nervous and you're not. You're proud because you're not saying, okay, you want them? Here they are. And you give them to the Lord. So I'm going to close. I've got two or three minutes. And I'm just going to give you examples of how God's been faithful to me. And I just sat down at my desk and I said, bring them to my mind. What would be helpful for these guys? Number one, got a call. I can't remember, first or second year here, that we got a demon-possessed girl in this room. We want you to come. I have never in my life encountered a demon-possessed person. I called Tom Steller because the Bible says go out two by two. Because <laughs> I believe that. And we went together about 10 o'clock at night. We were there probably till 1 in the morning. And she was a gorilla with a knife, a little pen knife. So I kept on my coat because I thought she could stick the winter coat. It was winter. And it wouldn't do too much damage. And she's walking around just juking at people. And these were young Bethel students, unbelievably anointed and fearless. Because they just stood there. They wouldn't let her out. They were standing in the door, not letting her out. She had a knife. She sounded like a... And uh, to, to make a long, horrible story short, about two hours later, she passed out on the floor. We sang over her for about a half an hour. And, and she, she screamed that Satan not leave her. Went unconscious on the floor, as far as I could tell. And we just, did we kill her? We didn't know what. I mean, this is, to- I'm, I've never experienced anything like that before. This is what you get handed, right? And she woke up. Face looked totally different. Voice totally different. She had knocked the Bible out of my hands a half a dozen times as I was trying to read the Bible. I handed her the Bible and asked her to read all of Romans 8. She did. She was in church the next Sunday. On the second row, I was scared to death. Like, she's going to be so wild in this service. She was resoundingly converted. She was in the church about six more months, broke her leg playing soccer. 
I visited in the hospital. We had long talks about what was behind all this. And I could tell you her story. You would not believe what she had done. But anyway, there, there, God comes to me. I'm a zero-educated person when it comes to demon possession and deliverance. What did I have? My book! I knew, I knew, I didn't have anything, but right here is power. I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And then we sang it. We just sang it. We took the tune, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And we just put new words. Jesus is Lord. He is coming. We just, somebody would throw in another Bible truth. And she went absolutely berserk and, and, and was delivered. God was faithful. My son came home one night, I won't say which one, um, 15 years old, and he was an hour later than I told him. I'd waited up for him. I said, what happened? And he lied to me. I didn't know it at the time. In the morning, he was gone. So my son ran away. This is Friday morning, sermon preparation day. I'm at home with him alone. Noel and the kids are out. It's just me and him. He's gone. He left me a note under his pillow. I love you, and I let you down again. Don't worry. I'm okay. I know the city. <laughs> and he does. So I wasn't too worried, frankly. Except he's gone. What do you do? How do you preach? How do you get a sermon ready? This is life, guys. This is what you're dealt with. And um, I made the decision, knowing him, I wouldn't call the police. I think he knows what he's doing. I didn't think he was suicidal or anything like that. Big judgment call. Um, and I, I prepared my sermon. I have no idea what I preached on. And I called one man, one, one, one guy, and I said, this is the situation. Pray with me. I don't know what to do. Walked into church from behind looking. Maybe he'll be here. This is, you're preaching under these concerns. He wasn't. And on Monday, I called the school. And I said, is my son in class? They said, yes. I said, I'm his dad. I want to see him now. So I drove to the school. And he's walking down the hall. And I'm walking out of the principal's office. And he just starts to weep on my shoulder. God is faithful. And we had the longest, best talk that night. Well, that's 22 minutes. I've got three more of those. Let's mention them. The spiritual gifts battle, trying so hard to be a bona fide non-cessationist. <laughs> to be open to all the good things God has to give us and crazies come out of the woodwork and, and people give you false prophecies that just about devastate you and, and, and uh, God is faithful. We didn't, I didn't throw it away. I didn't despise prophesying, but I sure am cautious because we got some of the weirdest stuff happened in the late 80s because we were trying so hard, and I encourage you to try hard. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. They're all for the upbuilding of the church. Don't let them tear anything to shreds, and don't let them make you bitter and ugly, which was my temptation because when... A lawyer prophesies over me that my wife will die in childbirth and my next child will be a girl. And you weep your eyes out saying, God, is that, your, is that what you're giving me when I'm trying here? And a boy was born and she didn't die. It's a false prophet. 
the moral failure in our church, 92 and 3, was the biggest thing we've ever faced. And God wonderfully brought us through that. And the worship wars were hard, and he brought us through that. And so the last point is trust him. Trust him. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. He cares for you. So, last verse. Um, Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will get the glory through Jesus Christ. To him be the dominion forever and ever.